Today's episode is brought to you by The Kissing Bug by Daisy Hernandez, a book Amy Stewart calls an absolutely essential perspective on global migration, poverty, and pandemics. Following her aunt's death from Chagas, a rare and devastating illness that affects the heart and digestive system, Hernandez began crisscrossing the United States to interview patients, doctors, epidemiologists, and even veterinarians with the Department of Defense to learn more about the illness, says Angie Cruz. The question the kissing bug investigates is timely. Who does the United States take care of? And who does it leave behind? Through the personal story of Hernandez's family and countless interviews that include patients and epidemiologists, the inequity of the healthcare system is exposed. Hernandez writes to the heart of the story with immense tenderness, compassion, and intelligence. The Kissing Bug is out now from Tin House. Today's transatlantic conversation with Irish writer and poet Darren Nagrifa was also an interspecies conversation between my Pacific Northwest calico cat overlord Ewok and Darren's County Cork Canine Whirlwind Mossy, both of whom did their best to be part of this conversation. For the most part, with the magic of editing, you won't notice a thing. But there is a moment where I abruptly talk about our animals just after Mossy licked the microphone before disconnecting it. So I did want to do a shout out to Ewok and Mossy and dedicate this conversation to transnational interspecies insurrections. Darren adds the readings of two favorite contemporary poems by others to the bonus audio archive, a reading of the Irish poet Colette Bryce's poem, A Spider, and a reading of a longer poem by the American poet Deborah Diggs called Broom. To learn more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio, and about the other potential benefits of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter of the show. Everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin, Nikki Finney, and Forrest Gander, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before the general public, or simply to get the resource-rich email that accompanies each episode, full of the most exciting things I discovered in my preparation for the conversation, as well as suggestions of what to explore next. To check all of this out, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Darren Negrifa. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. Stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. 
artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and writer Diren Nagrifa. Nagrifa is the author of six critically acclaimed books of poetry. She began in the Irish language poetry scene and wrote her first several books in Irish. 2015's collection Clasp, which won the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature, the Hartnett Poetry Award, and was on the Irish Times Poetry Award shortlist, was Nagrifa's first poetry collection written in English. Maya Catherine Popa for Poetry Magazine said of Clasp, the poems excel in their consideration of motherhood, particularly its paradoxical losses and gains, separation and unity. The collection's section titles, Clasp, Cleave, Clench, suggest the muscularity of attachment to the past, place, and the body that drives the poetic impulse. Nagrifa followed her English language debut with the bilingual collection Lies, which collects the best of her Irish language poetry, but now with each poem not only rendered in Irish and a facing English translation, but an English translation done by the poet herself. Lies went on to be named an Irish Times Book of the Year and an Irish Independent Book of the Year. Darren's work has been commissioned by everyone from the Poetry Society to Poetry Ireland to the Embassy of Ireland in Britain, has garnered a Lannan Literary Fellowship, the Seamus Heaney Fellowship, and the Italian Astana Prize given to literary authors who use a mother tongue, a present-day minority language of territorial belonging in their works. Even with all of this success as a poet, the poet herself was taken aback by the response to her first work of prose, a book that defies categorization, a memoir, a book of historical nonfiction, a fiction, a book about translation, a book that is a translation, a book about poetry, a book that is poetry, but perhaps most of all, a detective story, an act of literary archaeology, and an exploration that is also an adventure story happening in two times at once. A Ghost in the Throat is the winner of the Irish Book Awards Nonfiction Book of the Year, was shortlisted for the 2021 Rathbones Folio Prize and the 2021 Republic of Consciousness Prize, and was picked by The Guardian as a Best Book of 2020. Largely written at the top of a multi-story car park in Cork, where she would go just after dropping her kids off at school. A ghost in the throat has captured readers' hearts and imaginations. Irish writer and playwright Emma Donahue says, A ghost in the throat is something strange and very special. A ravishingly immersive telling of the way in which a poet and mother's obsession with a poet and mother who died centuries ago makes their different lives chime like bells. Irish journalist Clodagh Finn adds, working from Eileen Dove Nahanel's famous poem and her own research, the author manages to get closer to this historic woman than any other person has ever done before. 
Her account is so vivid that we are almost there with the pregnant Eileen Dove on horseback when she comes upon the body of her murdered husband and is so overcome with grief that she scoops up his blood and drinks it. Finally, the New York Review of Books adds, Negrifa is a poet through and through. In this prose work, she writes lyrical sentences that make the physical world come alive. It was around Eileen Dove Nahanel's time that a new poetic form was invented, the Ashlyn, a dream vision of Ireland revealing itself to the poet as a beautiful woman in need of saving. Negrifa certainly gives us a new feminist vision of a woman saving another woman, writing a historical imbalance that persists in women's continued sacrifices. A Ghost in the Throat is just out now, this June, in North America from Biblioasis. And if that were not enough, this spring she has also released a new poetry collection, To Star the Dark from Daedalus Press, a book of which poet Sean Hewitt says, Looking into the dark sky of history, dear Negrifa calls up an illuminating fire, a night constellated into images of passion and destruction. An astrologer of the body, its endurance and its vulnerability, Negrifa is a poet of daring skill, lyrical, searching, and enchanted. To Star the Dark is a blazing, brave collection. Welcome to Between the Covers, dear Negrifa. Thank you so, so much for having me. Well, my last guest that I had on, the Moroccan writer, Abdella Taya, we talked a lot about possession and about jinns that possessed Arab poets. And I think you could argue not only that the idea of haunting and being haunted is central to A Ghost in the Throat, but also something that we could find across your body of work. For instance, the epigraphs in your latest poetry collection, To Star the Dark, one, one by Mina Loy that says, the past has come apart, events are vaguing, and the other by Louise Bourgeois, has the day invaded the night or has the night invaded the day? They both could easily have been epigraphs for A Ghost in the Throat, I think. Especially since this question of whether the day has invaded the night or the night, the day is very similar to the question of this book of whether you are being haunted by Eileen Dove Nahanel or whether you yourself are haunting her. It is, it is unclear who is the ghost and who is the throat. But given that you are now talking to maybe for the first time to a very different audience than the Irish and English audiences of the last year, an audience in America who likely has never heard of Eileen Dove Nahanel, nor her poem. I think maybe we should just start with um, you orienting us to the place that she has in Irish culture, how well-known she and her poem are in the culture at large, but also your encounters with her poem at various points in your life and how those encounters were different encounters because of who you were. Well, Eileen Dovni Connell is a fascinating character. She was a poet who composed an extraordinary Queen Element poem in the 18th century. And she was lamenting the murder of her husband by English soldiers. 
One of the most extraordinary things about this poem, as far as I was concerned, was the fact that it was a work of oral literature that was spoken and that was then learned by heart every time it was subsequently recited to groups of women very often who would then learn it by heart and recite it again. And that meant that the poem was able to make its way to us eventually through this path of coming through female body after female body over years and years and years until it found its way to us. Um, there was something very moving for me in that, in the fact that it made its way to us as a spoken artifact. Part of what I think fascinated me about that was the fact that it was held within female bodies for so long, memorized. And that phrase I love so much to learn something by heart. Mm. The fact that it's held in the heart, that it's held in the body, spoken, and that it, a work of literature like that can begin to feel so urgent and so important that it compels the listener to learn it and, and to recite it again to a new audience. And that that would enable its path to us to eventually being transcribed and published and working its way into the literary canon. One of very, very few works of oral literature composed by women, which did so in Britain and Ireland. So it's a rare, rare thing, very rare and very precious. Um, and it feels like it feels like a living entity. Now, granted, I'm very taken with this poem, so of course I'd say that, but it genuinely does feel like a living entity. It's a poem when spoken aloud still retains all the force, all the rage, the desire, the despair of a woman who is deeply in love with a man whose body she has just found. And in finding his body is so deeply struck by that loss that she falls to her her knee scoops up handfuls of his blood and is compelled to drink that blood and then speaks this poem. It's an extraordinary work and we're so, so fortunate to have it. Well, I love how you, you talk about how this poem intersects with your own life, that you imagine that perhaps when you encountered it as a child, you would have found it boring. And then as a teenager, it had the Romeo and Juliet aspects stand out the tragedy of of the romance the the horse the scooping of scooping up and drinking of of her husband's blood um but what was it the 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 encounter the third time what about the poem leapt out that grabbed you to want to make it into a book i think there was something about that circling back again and again that led to a sort of deepening, I suppose, that we can all relate to whenever we circle back to a work of art, whether it's a poem or a film or an album, you know, something that struck us deeply, whether in childhood or when we were teenagers, when you come back to something like that again and again, each time you return to it, it's changed. It has changed and and we have changed in the in the act of returning. So there was something in that act of return to this poem that startled me. I think I think that's it. It startled me because, as you say, 
when I first came to it as a child in what we would call primary school here, I was quite kind of bored by it and a little dismissive. Then as a teenager, I was so struck by the high drama of it, the sense of the desire, the, particularly the image of, of this woman scooping up handfuls of blood and her grief was really deeply moving to me as a teenager. But there were so many aspects of this poet's personhood that escaped me at those points in my life. And when I returned to it in adulthood, one of the things that first drew me towards it was a sense of recognition. I had never noticed before the fact that the speaker of the poem is herself pregnant and a young mother at the time. Um, perhaps because that maybe just wouldn't have interested me as a teenager or as a child, you know. Mm. Um, and and at the time that I was reading it, I was in a similar situation myself. And I felt that sense of a mirror, you know, I felt that sense of recognition and of seeing this poet in, in a different light from how she had been revealed to me on previous readings. And that fascinated and startled me in equal measure. And it led to me returning to the poem over and over again and speaking it to myself like an incantation, becoming more and more familiar with the cadence of the lines with the places where she paused to draw breath. The fact that not only was this poem a fossil of a real woman's life and her living breath and words, but that so much of her character was in there embedded in the lines. And the more I attended to the poem, the more curious I became about her and really quite nosy. I wanted to know more and and I really wanted to see whether I could come to know her mm. and how much I could find out about this woman. Because although there was some information about her life, there wasn't enough to satisfy me. I wanted more. I wanted to know everything. Yeah. Well, um, one of the more interesting conversations I, I, I joined of yours was at the Jaipur Literary Festival in India. I really liked how the cross-cultural interaction was happening with your interviewer, Jayanti, who recognized the tradition of keening in India and the ways it both overlapped as a form of grief, of an oral mm -hmm. form of grief, often performed by women. Um, but unlike in Ireland and India, um, lower-class people were hired to keen for upper-class funerals mm -hmm. there. And I was also listening to a conversation with Padre Gotuma, which wasn't about keening, but, but keening came up. And he was talking about how for a man to become a poet traditionally in Ireland, that it was a 17-year education, and that keening arrived partially out of the denial of, of literacy and this sort of formal education for women in Ireland that the passing down of a poem from one woman's body to another across space and through time was an entirely separate poetic lineage. And perhaps, or at least it made me think that the keen is then in, in and of itself a ghost in the throat from one woman to another. 
Um, and that the keening is a poetic form of haunting and also of solidarity. Um, and I, uh, in that spirit, I, I would love to, if we could just early on in this conversation, have you read the opening to the book. I would love to. This is a female text. This is a female text composed while folding someone else's clothes. My mind holds it close and it grows tender and slow while my hands perform innumerable chores. This is a female text born of guilt and desire, stitched to a soundtrack of cartoon nursery rhymes. This is a female text and it is a tiny miracle that it even exists as it does in this moment, lifted to another consciousness by the ordinary wonder of type. Ordinary to the ricochet of thought that swoops now from my body to yours. This is a female text written in the 21st century. How much has changed? How little? This is a female text, which is also a queena, a dirge and a drudge song, an anthem of praise, a chant and a keen, a lament and an echo, a chorus and a hymn. Join in. Every morning of mine is much the same. I kiss my husband, feeling a pang as I do so. No matter how often our morning goodbye is repeated, I always miss him when he leaves. Even as his motorbike roars into the distance, I am already hurrying into my own day. First, I feed our sons, then fill the dishwasher, pick up toys, clean spills, glance at the clock, bring our eldest to school, return home with the toddler and the baby, sigh and snap, laugh and kiss, slump on the sofa to breastfeed the youngest, glance at the clock again, read The Very Hungry Caterpillar several times, try to rinse baby spew from my ponytail into the bathroom sink, fail, make a tower of blocks to be knocked, attempt to mop, give up when the baby cries, Kiss the knees of the toddler who slips on the half-washed floor. Glance at the clock yet again. Wipe more spilled juice. Set the toddler at the table with a jigsaw puzzle and carry the youngest upstairs for his nap. The baby sleeps in a third-hand cot held together with black gaff tape. And the walls of our rented bedroom are decorated not with pastel murals, but with a constellation of black mould. I can never think of a lullaby, so I resort to tunes from teenage mixtapes instead. I used to rewind Karma Police so obsessively that I wondered whether the brown spool might snap. But every time I pressed play, the machine gave me the song again. Now, in my exhaustion, I return to that melody, humming it gently as the baby glugs from my breast. Once his jaw relaxes and his eyes roll back, I creep away, 
struck again by how often moments of my day are lived by countless other women in countless other rooms through the shared text of our days. I wonder whether they love their drudge work as I do, whether they take the same joy in slowly erasing a list like mine, filled with such simplicities as school run, mop, hoover upstairs, pump, bins, dishwasher, laundry, clean toilets, milk, spinach, chicken, porridge, school run, bank and playground, dinner, baths, bedtime. I keep my list as close as my phone and draw a deep sense of satisfaction each time I strike a task from it. In such erasure lies joy. I've been listening to Darren Nagrifa read from A Ghost in the Throat. A part of why I wanted you to read this is because the second part of the reading, when you're describing the details of daily mothering, you don't describe it as, a, as the shared bodily gestures of women across time, but as the shared text of women's lives. And similarly, you don't declare the book as a female keen, but as a female text, which is the refrain that echoes throughout this whole story. We return to that declaration many times. And some people, and I'm guessing mainly men, say Keynes shouldn't be considered to have a single author because they are passed down through so many people. But you've, but you've pushed back against this and said that texts are no different. And I was hoping you could talk about this, the way you're calling this the shared text, but also about the word text in this light. It, it's so interesting to consider, isn't it, that sense in which our lives could be considered texts, because that implicates us in the act of composition and, and in our sense of authorship of our own lives, in what way or in what ways is the act of living in an ordinary way, composing the books of our lives, you know, and, and I became fascinated by, I don't know if you could call it the literary genre, but I will out of brazenness, the literary genre of the to-do list, you know, <laughs> fascinated by that because I, I, I have kept notebooks of to-do lists for longer than I can remember. And if I happen upon an old notebook, it's such a glimpse into the self I was at that point of my life and the, the minuscule ways in which I was committing myself to greater tasks, you know, like something tiny, seemingly tiny that would appear on a to-do list over many years adds up to something so much greater. For example, for many years, something that appeared on my to-do list was thinking about this book. And every time it was in a slightly different iteration from for many months, it was the act of translation, attempting to carry Queen Arthi Lyra, the Keen for Arto Lyri, from the Irish language into the English language. Then it began to transform into something else. It began to become this sense of, of pilgrimage, of bringing myself 
to the places that we know that Eileen Dove Nikonnell, this other poet, had lived and had spent time. And then again, over further time, it became the act of writing, where, as you mentioned in your lovely introduction, so much of this book was was written on the roof of a multi-story car park in Cork in the south of Ireland where I live. So at that point, the to-do list was shifting again. But it was the same greater urge, I suppose, towards trying to compose a work of literature in response to a work of literature and in doing so to examine the sense of a life, whether my life or the version of myself that's articulated within the book was what was I was was the text I was trying to articulate or whether it was the life of Eileen Dovney Connell. So there were these parallel texts and the sense of a text really did feel important to me throughout. I began to see texts everywhere I looked. And as you mentioned, there is a refrain throughout the book. This is a female text. And it, it's important to me to say that I consider it one type of female text because it was so close to my life and to what I was trying to discover about my life and about Eileen Dovney Connell's life. That was what I was attempting to articulate. But I was by no means trying to speak for anyone else's sense of what it might be to live a female life or to to write a female text. Um, and it's actually led me to great curiosity in the dialogue that comes after publishing a book to hear about different ways that other people would interpret that phrase within the context of their own lives. Um, and I think that's one element of publishing a book that's so fascinating to every author because suddenly you start to see all these different roots that you may not have considered growing from something that you felt okay, you know this inside out, this text, you've been writing it for years and suddenly it begins to grow into new questions and new ways that you can learn from it. So that's something I'm still considering and the ways that this is one female text and there are so many, many, many other types of female texts too. Well, I, I love what you just said because you sort of answer something about the about the word text without explicitly saying so, but the way you are evoking the way you've interbraided your life with Eileen Dove's life and the way you're open to your own interpretation being woven into these other interpretations of your own book. Um, the, the spirit of that and feels connected to the spirit of the keen of, of, of this, story being held in different bodies collectively and changing with each body, but also at the same time being connected to all the bodies. It feels somehow connected to this, this question of, of readership and writers, but it also that you, you bring up this wonderful thing about text that the word comes originally from weaving. So, um, um, textile, yes, exactly. textile yeah. is, is, uh, is, where the word text comes from and interbraiding. And it, it just makes me, I'm always curious about why we have such a bias that we'll say that something passed down 
through memory and through the body from one body to another couldn't be an original work. But something in words could be, but every single word was given to us by someone else and by many someone else. Like it took so many people to like infuse every single word we choose. And of course we add our own something to it, but it doesn't seem fundamentally different than, I mean, it is different and it gives us an illusion of a difference, but it, it doesn't seem fundamentally different. It still feels like it relies on something about the collective. And it's so interesting the way that you articulate that. That that was something that I felt I was trying to feel my way towards within the book. This the the sense of text as having come from Texere, you know, that sense of to weave, to braid, the, to fuse in in its in its previous etymology. Um and the roots that lurk under all the words that we use. The Belfast poet Kieran Carson is extraordinary on this. The, the deep consideration he gives to the sources and the ways in which words have changed. You have the sense reading his poems that every single word has been so deeply considered, not only in, in our current understanding of its meaning, but in terms of the many, many, many other meanings that could be extrapolated from each word. Mm. Um, and the other thing that struck me as you were speaking there was, was that one of the one of the recurrent motifs that came to me as I was considering texts in their many iterations was starlings we have so many starlings here those little speckled birds and and i know from my reading that often in america they that they're considered like an invasive species like almost like a pest we don't really have that sense of them here their population hasn't exploded in in huge numbers as it may have there um but it's impossible for me to consider a starling without listening closely to their song because they mimic so beautifully. As you know, they, they, they over generations, they absorb the sounds that they hear, the environmental sounds, the, the noises that punctuate their days and they're excellent mimics and they weave those songs into the text. They weave those sounds, I should say, into the text of their songs. And then there's these just joyous bursts of song where sometimes if you're listening to a group of starlings, you'd think, did I just recognize a car alarm in what they're saying? Oh, wow. Or yeah, it's so interesting. And oftentimes what I find very moving is in Ireland, you'll often happen upon um as say a little cluster of uh, ruined houses that may have been abandoned during the famine in the 19th century and there will always be starlings around mm -hmm. and I find it intensely moving to listen to the starlings there because over generations they learn and internalize the sounds that are there you know and they they will be mimicking sounds that were made by people who were long gone from those dwellings and so I returned to that um, comforting I suppose image of the starling a lot when I was considering that sense of authorship when the starling sings 
is it composing its own song and does it deserve credit for authorship <laughs> or is the fact that it's drawing on motifs that it has learned over generations I, like I feel that that's cause for astonishment and and I take great joy in that sense of the starling and of the queena and of all the forms of literature composed by women that have miraculously made their way to us against all odds. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. I, I want to, I'm hoping you're open to the possibility of, of telling your origin story as, as a poet, because I, when I think of, of Keynes being very connected to grief and death and the way your origin story itself is connected your origin story, in a way, it feels connected to the Starling story too, in the sense that it's intergenerational, and it 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 both about um, new life being composed and o- older life passing away at the same time. Would you would you share with us the circumstances of the first uh, poems that you wrote? I would love to, and thank you for asking me. I love the way you call it my origin story. It makes me feel like I could be some kind of a superhero. (laughs) I think you might be. A super poet. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to know what my superpowers might become. Yes, you were bit by a radioactive starling in in a... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so uh, so much of the process of writing for me feels profoundly mysterious I don't understand where poems come from I don't understand why they come to me with the urgency that they do I'm I'm intensely grateful that they do but I don't know where they come from or why and sometimes after I've composed them I I, I forget even the how of it sometimes it feels looking back on certain poems that I've composed that they really did come from elsewhere you know and Alice Notley is extraordinary on this you know that she says she's spoken in interviews about how poetry is spoken to us from elsewhere that there's a strong sense of poetry comes to us from the voices of the dead you know and um this sense of grief and our relationships with the dead is an important part of my work in a way that I still don't fully understand. I definitely don't understand, as you call my origin story, um, but it is what it is, I guess. Um, I was very close to my grandfather. And when he was coming close to death, our extended family were all um, asked to be near him and I traveled from where I lived to Dublin um, with my baby who had who was very young at the time and when we got the call in the middle of the night to be by his bedside it was felt that it wouldn't really be appropriate for there to be a baby there which I completely understand you know um, it was a really important moment but that meant that I was in my aunt's house trying to push my son to sleep and feeling um, really torn up and upset um, and distant from everyone. And 
um, I was lying in a darkened room just trying to get the baby to sleep and these lines of poetry came to me which was shocking because I had never tried to write a poem and I would never even have considered attempting any kind of creative writing apart from what you are assigned in school. There was nothing like that, no element like that in my life whatsoever. But these lines of poetry kept insisting on themselves and I knew by the rhythm of them that it was poetry rather than prose. Um, and it was such a strange experience that I did wonder for a while whether it was as a poem that I'd learned in school that was returning to me. But the more it repeated, the more clear it was that it, it was something else. So once the baby fell asleep, I got up and um, managed to find pen and paper and, and wrote the poem, which was a poem in the Irish language about Ilan Clara, Clare Island, which is a place I've never been. Um, and in the act of what strikes me now is that I've I've told this story before and every time I feel just slightly strange or embarrassed maybe a little because it's it's such a strange story but there's no escaping the fact that this is simply the truth of how I came to writing but yeah. what 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 strikes me now and and I've never um that this image hasn't really occurred to me any other time I've told it is this I, I get such a strong image of pressing pen to paper as I was writing that poem and the sense of all the letters being connected in joined handwriting um that sense of connection and the sense of of writing the words and and feeling that connection with my grandfather was just so moving and and I I felt very close to him in that moment and and I continued to sit with pen and paper that evening and came back to it the next day and the day after that and and I still every time I'm writing I think of him I I feel it as a gift um and I feel the mystery of it and um I'll always be intensely grateful for that moment it's it's one of the things that I love about your work it's it's not just the palimpsest between the past and the present which is one of the things i really love about your work but the way you hold birth and death together i'm thinking of a couple lines in your collection clasp under layers of lip lies the fossil of a first kiss or um, when you're describing pregnancy as i carry your bones in my body little skeleton little skull and I was hoping, maybe before we go any further, um, if you'd read a a short poem from Lies um, in Irish and then in your English translation called Solace. Thank you. I'd love to. So lost. I'll just say to preface this that there's a note included with this poem to contextualize it in Irish folklore. The souls of dead infants were believed to return as sedge warblers to comfort their mothers with bird song. So lost. We show Gali Maniha, the Hul Kailta, Bill and She or Kriaka Kiana. 
Anim the vowel brina, a huler a keeper, a spatalum gavilha to a Listen. In midnight moon mist, in snatches of lost music, I've heard her return from the distance. Little visitor, your birthmark looks so familiar. Small warbler, listen, every night I'll wait awake, facing north until the last starlight fades. Find me, child. I yearn for your return. I, I wanted to ask you about the erasure of the Irish language in Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. Padre Gutuma calls it the original wound, where everything, at least from his perspective, um, begins in terms of colonization and the erasure of Irish culture. And in reading essays by you, we learn that your great-grandparents spoke both Irish and English, but that your grandfather only English, if I'm remembering correctly, but that he was so ashamed when he couldn't understand people who spoke Irish to him that he became an Irish teacher. You've also talked about how in, in the Irish language poetry scene, there was an expectation that you'd, you'd write in Irish and perhaps one day someone would translate your poetry into English or other languages, but that just wasn't happening for you, and that was why you went ahead and translated your own poetry yourself. But there are other Irish poets who take different stances. I'm thinking of Biddy Jenkinson, who said in 1991, I prefer not to be translated into English in Ireland. It is a small, rude gesture to those who think that everything can be harvested and stored without loss in an English-speaking Ireland. If I were a corncrake, I would feel no obligation to have my skin cured, my tarsi injected with formalin, so that I could fill a museum shelf in a world that saw no need for my kind. And I know that you, from a young age, had an Irish language education. And I, I guess I wondered how typical or how unusual your relationship to Irish is in Ireland today. And since we are talking about Keynes and grief, I'd also be curious about your feelings toward English as a language of your poetry and prose now. Such a fascinating question. Thank you so much. Um, the position of the Irish language in Ireland is vexed, to say the least. There is a lot of hostility towards it. Um, Many people of my generation and of previous generations feel and articulate a deep sense of resentment towards the Irish language. And the usual argument that's made against it is, and imagine making an argument against a whole language. (laughs) Um, The usual argument that's made against the Irish language and the place of the Irish language is that it was poorly taught in school and that that it is useless 
that it's a waste of time and people feel extremely strongly about that. Conversely, there are many, many people who feel really passionately about keeping the Irish language alive. And it is a living thing. There are many, many people like me who speak Irish, who love Irish, um, who speak Irish on a daily basis in lots of different contexts. And to us, it's a living thing. Um, there are also probably a lot of people in between who don't have strong feelings either way. But from my own experience, far more people would tend towards that sense of hostility and uh, suspicion towards us. Um, and it is a very deep wound because my sense of that, the fact that people harbor such strong feelings against the language is that that is coming from a place of pain and a place a place of loss and a place of having been made to feel that they were in some way lesser because they couldn't articulate themselves in a language that they due to the ways in which the education system was forming around them that they weren't that there weren't opportunities being created for them to learn their own language and then they were being treated badly because they couldn't speak in the language. It's really difficult. The whole scenario is really, really difficult. From my own perspective, which is really all I can speak about, I guess, to a certain extent, my parents sent me to a school that was based on a system of immersion education. So from the day that I went in at the age of four, speaking only English all the teachers spoke only Irish to me and like many children in many other countries around the world that operate schools under these systems like a sponge children just pick up language almost unbeknownst to themselves is my experience in a very relaxed way that is blessedly free from a lot of the historical hang-ups because it just feels so ordinary. It just feels like just another thing. And I feel extraordinarily fortunate that my parents enrolled me in a school like that. And I feel very fortunate to have this sense of being able to articulate myself in both languages. It's so important. It's so important to me. And the Irish language allows me to use words that were used by my ancestors going back centuries. I mean, it's extraordinary to have that facility. And I just wish it was less unusual. I wish it was something that others could share, could share in in some way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. And, and, and that's the truth of it. Yeah. Um, what was the second part of the question again? Well, you've, you've, you've somewhat answered it, but your feelings toward English as, oh, yeah. the, as the language of your, uh, of your writing, it, at least in your most recent several books. Mm -hmm. um, when we arrive at questions of, of composition of creative works in both languages, I have such 
sympathy with Biddy Jenkinson's perspective. And I love the brazenness with which she articulates it so much. Anytime I hear that quote, it just lights me up. The defiance of it is really something special. And she does permit her poems to be translated into other languages. It's just English that she puts the foot down over English. Um, and she makes a very strong case. Um, I suppose every poet coming to their craft in a country like Ireland, where there is this vexed attitude towards the language and, and writing primarily in the Irish language, has to make a call at some point about where they stand. And for me, it was intensely important to have a connection with the audiences of people who were coming to literary readings. The, the literary scene, if you could call it that, in Ireland is really vibrant. And I think that in some ways you could make a case that, that harks back to that sense of the Queen, of the Keen and the way that many people would gather and hear these Queenta, these Keens recited and then learn them by heart and recite them again. We have a really strong sense of that still where poetry readings and readings from novels are not uncommon here, you know, and, and that there's quite a lot of institutional support for those kind of events through the Arts Council. So whenever I was invited to read from my poems in Irish, it was important to me that I wasn't closing the door on any of the people who were looking up at me. And I could understand that a lot of the people who are coming to those kind of readings, where there might be several writers or poets reading at the same time, um, would be invariably experiencing a lot of feelings if a poet stood up and read only in Irish. And some poets in that situation would say like, yeah, and would would stand that ground and say, that's fine, that's me, I'm only reading Irish and that's that. Whereas for me, it was important to open the door to the poem and welcome people in. Um, so that was how I came to teaching myself to translate my poems into English, which was intensely difficult. <laughs> it's one of the most difficult things I've ever had to learn in my life. Like literary translation is difficult. Um, I do want to, I, I, later I do want to dwell in that process, okay. in that process <laughs> for you. Um, but before we return to Eileen Dove, I was, I was, I was hoping we could hear two poems in your latest poetry collection to star the dark that are about your two languages one is false friends and the and the the second it follows it a jaw a jar so i'll begin by reading the poem false friends um false friends is the phrase used when a word in a certain language corresponds hourly with a word in your own language so, for example, the Irish language word for history is star, which sounds very like the word star in English. So a lot of this poem is finding that ground between Irish and English where certain words sound almost the same. And I suppose it's considering the sense of that. And the sense we can make of that, the fact that there's common ground between the languages. False friends. 
The Irish for history is star. The Irish for teach is moon. The Irish for light is loss. The Irish for secret is rune. Perhaps this is why night skies catch our eye, luring us to learn by what light still shines. Poem A Jaw A Jar includes two Irish language phrases, one of which is Curry Gale, which is could maybe be translated as a pretense or a sham. And the other one is Curran Gale, which sounds so like it and it means jawbone. So within this poem, there's a recurrence of two phrases within the Irish language that sound so similar, Curran Gale and Curry Gale, one meaning jawbone and one meaning a pretense. A jaw ajar. Suppose you hold a jawbone so old that its chin has split. Suppose the professor explains derelict workhouse, famine era, a mass grave. In his fist, a broken grin. He says, Generous selection of fragments, says incremental dentine collagen analysis. For him, you must say when starvation set in. So hold the bone, two neat halves, one in each hand. Bring them together and see it, full, skinned, a stubbled chin, a cheek once patted, Kissed, hit, a mouth that knew the speech and spit of one warm tongue. Lifted to your ear, try to lure a voice from elsewhere, spoken or sung. You wish you could return to it, a word that once echoed through its hollows, but your voice catches in your throat. Suppose the professor smiles. A fine specimen, this mandible. What would you call it in Gaelic? You stutter, trying to say Coran Gale, but your split tongue fails. And the only sound you make is curry gale. We've been listening to Darren Nagrifa read from her latest poetry collection from Daedalus Press, To Star the Dark. So I, I want to return to Eileen Dove, um, the story of which occurs during the era of the penal laws in Ireland, which largely destroyed the Irish social order. And you mentioned some of the details of this, and I also couldn't help but look up more of them myself. But the Irish weren't allowed to vote or bear arms or to get an education. There was even a law put forth that would castrate any Catholic priests who were unregistered. It was illegal to teach Catholicism. Mixed marriages were forbidden. If a Catholic inherited property, he could be ousted by the closest Protestant heir. 
if a Catholic person died, his estate was divided equally among his sons, but if the eldest son converted to be a Protestant, he could inherit all the land and dispossess all of his siblings. But there's also a penal law about horses, and this law ultimately plays a part in the death of Art O'Leary, Eileen Dove's husband, which prompts her to compose the keen that we're talking about. So I was hoping maybe we could both talk about the penal laws in relationship to the death of Art O'Leary, but also since your life is a palimpsest on this story, what, if anything, you know of your own family's story during during this era as well? Oh, interesting. Uh, we don't know anything of my um, family's history during the era of the penal laws, which is relatively unusual for us because our family has been rooted in the same small rural place for centuries. And there are many, many, many other stories going back a long time that have made their way down. But there's nothing that I know of anyway that came from this era. And perhaps that's part of the reason why I was so drawn to Eileen Dovney Connell's story. Mm. Um, the law that you mentioned that pertains to horses was that an Irish Catholic wasn't allowed to hold possession of a horse worth more than five pounds. And the implication that that held for Eileen Dovney Connell and her husband, Arthur Lira, was that he had worked in the employ of the Austro-Hungarian army. And he was such an extraordinary soldier that a gift was made to him. He was given his horse and he was permitted to bring that horse home. Now, this horse, by all accounts, was really something special. Everybody was in awe of this horse. And one of the people who was in awe of this horse was a man who was a local magistrate called Abraham Morris. He wanted Arthur O'Leary's horse. And he knew as a member of the colonizing community that he could demand this horse and disrespect Arthur O'Leary by demanding it for the measly sum of five pounds. When he suggested this to Arthur Lira, who was, <laughs> he was quite the character, Art. He refused this offer of five pounds and he was made an outlaw as a result, which meant that Abraham Morris could act with audacity within the law and could set a trap. I want to talk about this experience of the way you go about excavating this story and filling in the gaps that you can fill. Because this this book, A Ghost in the Throat, has a really complex relationship to erasure. As we know from the first piece you read at the very beginning, there is a joy for you in erasing things off of your mm -hmm. list. There's also the joy, which you mentioned in various different ways in this book, in disappearing into the needs of others which I want to, which you present in a, in a complicated way, and I would definitely want to unpack this with you later. But the more common relationship to erasure of this book is, is you combating erasure. And that first reading you gave hints at the many small details of being a mother that you include throughout the book, 
things that are usually left out of books that are edited out as not worthy of story. Um, and also how whole poetic forms might get discounted because they weren't written down or weren't passed down um, in words, but from body to body. And the book also is engaging with questions of erasure of Irish culture and Irish language. But one of the most fascinating things for me about this is how we're sort of, we're not sort of, we're very much by your side in the real time of the book with you puzzling out how to excavate Eileen Dove's story when her story is told largely through the words of men, if it's told at all. So even the most basic things, like she doesn't have a gravesite, her husband has a gravesite. Um, she's often portrayed in scholarship in the shadow of men as the widow of so-and-so or the aunt of so-and-so, rather than our, on her own terms. But, but what makes this doubly interesting is you decide to confront the erasure of her through using erasure yourself. So you take these correspondences of her brother's and erase all the references to men to try to bring forth the lives of the women that would have lived around Eileen Dove. And I'm hoping you'll talk about this and other practices that you used in the face of absence. Because this seems, I love you, use your weaponization of erasure against erasure. Well, I suppose one of the things I would say in response to that is that I felt the reader so close to me as I was composing this book and as I was going in search of Eileen Dovnikonal. And with all the sources I was coming to and increasingly coming up against absence and erasure and the neglect of, of documenting female lives with the same thoroughness that, that the male lives have been documented, I was asking myself, how can I tell the story of an absence? How can I articulate something that isn't there? And that was a real challenge. But the, the methods that came to me were slightly marked by mischief and by brazenness, like there's an audacity to the method you describe with that part of the book that feels to me a little close to the quote that you read from Biddy Jenkinson, the small rude gesture to encounter um, the letters back and forth between Eileen Dovnikonov's brothers and see so little of her life within those letters, let alone her own letters. The fact that she that her life hadn't been preserved or attended to in the way that we might have hoped. Um, the approach that I decided to take to that, to those gaps and, and to those absences, was to use the same weapons yeah. against those tellings and to decide to take those documents, for example, the letters of her brothers, in which there were scant references to the women, to the lives of women and just erase the male elements of it and leave the female elements and to see whether something could be made of those female elements that would retain something of the truth of Eileen Dovney Connell's life 
and not just her life, but the lives of the other women who were surrounding her, her mother, for example, and her twin sister. I was so fascinated to find that she had a twin sister because this was an element of this poet that had never really been acknowledged. As you mentioned, any time that her poem is reproduced in the line or two of a bio that goes with it, it just mentions her in the roles of aunt and wife. To me, if you're going to define someone by their familial roles, the role of being a twin is fascinating. And what happens when you remove the roles that define her by the men around her and instead choose to define her by the women around her and attempt to extrapolate a sense of her life to that kind of a telling? So that was, I suppose, the challenge I set myself. And the strangeness of that is the fact that it's disorientating to attempt to, to glean something of the truth of another person's days when there's so little to go by. Um, and yet, the more I persisted with the attempt, the closer I felt by Linto. And the more I wanted to know. And I kept going and kept going. And it became, once I came to writing it, it became the story of, of singing into that absence and singing or attempting to sing mm. the joys and the disappointments and the rages and the griefs of a woman's life despite the erasure that faced her and, and, that, and that was so heavily involved in the aftermath of her life. Yeah. Well, speaking of of you describing it as mischief, I've heard people call your book autofiction. And I think when I think of autofiction, I think of mischief. I think of an author playing with the reader's expectations of what is true and intentionally blurring the boundaries between the author outside of the book and the author portrayed in the book. But at least for me as a reader, I felt like it felt like you were trying to portray your quote unquote true self on the page. And I imagined that if there were acts of imagination in this book, that they were more in the service of Eileen Dove's not fully retrievable life rather than um, imaginative but un but quote unquote untrue portrayals of yourself. But I didn't know, maybe I'm wrong here. And, and I wanted to hear, I guess, more generally about the role of the imagined in A Ghost in the Throat. Because there are times uh, when you say, these are the limits of, my of what I'm willing to imagine, or clear things like when you mentioned the twin, we're, we are in the womb at one point with Eileen Dove and her twin, um, which of course we know is, is you imagining yourself into the womb. But, um, beyond that, tell us about, tell us about the role of, of the imaginative and what parameters you placed on it as a writer for yourself of what you were willing to invent. Mm -hmm. 
It's such an interesting question. And yet it's always, it, it's a question I'm asked a lot and it's a question that's very challenging to answer in the way that comes across coherently, but I will give it my best shot. Um, when I was approaching the writing of this book, I felt that there were two very strong characters that I wanted to articulate. Characters that felt extremely close to my own sense of self and a character that felt as close as I could imagine to Eileen Dovney Connell, a woman who was born and died centuries before me. So in terms of the elements of this book that draw most strongly on the imagination, absolutely there is a heavy amount of that involved with imagining her life um, in the 18th century. Um, and that was labor that I undertook very seriously. And I often felt as though I was dreaming my way into her existence. Um, and there were moments where that felt almost holy, that, that sensation of, of, of beginning to feel someone as a presence um, and the attempt to actively imagine oneself in her life and looking to her eyes and imagining that. There were moments in my telling of her part of the story where I very much kind of took a leap into acts of the imagination and attempted to flag that to the reader every time, you know. Um, and at one point even italicized the large section so it was particularly clear. Um, in terms of the version of myself, like the reason that it was described as autofiction is that it's, it's very different in some ways from a lot of the autofiction that I've read, but there are elements in which the character that represents me is very close to my sense of self, but it's an imagined sense of myself sometimes that thinks and feels and does things differently from how I might. And this, I think, is where I fall into difficulty because when I'm asked and, and how close to the truth is the version of yourself in this book, it's important for me to be able to say well, there are elements of autofiction here, there are elements of it that are very true to my sense of self and, and elements that are imagined. But also, I recently suffered a catastrophic loss of my sister under very traumatic circumstances where she died um, very young and I was helping her husband to care for her at the end and it was very 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 difficult and 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 um, this was just a couple of months ago so I'm I'm really in the hurricane of that grief and so anytime um, these questions come up of how close the truth of the character in a ghost in the throat is to myself I feel very much like it was closer to myself the version of myself when I was attempting to write the book than it is now because since the death of my sister I feel like my own sense of who my own sense of myself has been demolished mm. from the bones of my toes to the bones of my fingers and um, I now feel very, very far from any previous iteration of myself. And I think that that won't be an unfamiliar feeling to a lot of people who have suffered 
um, that kind of uh, shock and that kind of grief. Um, but I think that's what complicates things for me at the moment, to tell you the truth, is that sense of there are absolutely elements of autofictional elements and elements that veer much more closely to the truth in both the telling of both the character that represents me and the character that represents Eileen Dove. But at this stage, I feel increasingly distant from the character that represents me. But maybe that happens Maybe that happens to every author. The other side of this is that I'm so new to writing prose that that feels strange and, and um, surprising to me, that element of it. But maybe that's just part of it. Maybe that's how a lot of people feel. I don't know. I would imagine that no matter how true you're trying to be on the page, that you on the page, no matter what, isn't you uh, off the page. And I mean, there's always going to be that gap, right, between yeah. the representation and the represented. Um, mm -hmm. But there, yeah, there are definitely, I would say, elements of fiction throughout both strands. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the strong elements of truth throughout yes. both strands as well. I, I wonder if you feel more free to be more overtly mischievous and playful in your poetry in this regard around the truth because i'm thinking of your your poetry book titled lies which has the epigraph by lucy brock broido don't be afraid to tell the truth even if it's a lie and it's telling that you're calling your book of self translations itself lies because we're in a way even though what we just talked about is in the same language. We are talking about self-translation. We're talking about how are you translating yourself mm. in a ghost in the throat from your lived embodied life and what you're choosing to represent, what you're choosing to leave out and how you choose to represent it. But here you're, you're translating yourself and you play with the quote unquote lies of translation in, in the book most notably with a poem in Irish that mentions the time of day 137 and then in your english translation you mistranslated as 138 but you also have a translation of an irish poem of yours called jigsaw that you later translate again in clasp and it's a different translation you can tell they're the same poem i mean they're not the same poem you can tell they come from the same source um and i guess i want to as you mentioned earlier, um, I guess I want to hear more about the experience of self-translation for you, which is something, which is a tradition you share with your countryman, Samuel Beckett. And um, I'd be curious to hear about also translation dilemmas. For instance, preserving the rhythm or music of Irish in your English over and against the semantic meaning of words or the or the reverse like do you feel like how did you find yourself negotiating coming to loggerheads around your two languages that you both speak um and such a i'm sure that that sense of like you've brought this poem already to an aesthetic i don't know if resolution's the right word but you've bought it brought it to a place where it feels like it coheres and now you are having to to, to take the jigsaw metaphor, puzzle it back together again. Yes, 
it's a fraught process, literary translation, and you're absolutely right that in titling my book of self-translations, Lies, that was done with a very mischievous glint in my eye. And the reason that I chose that title for the book, I think, was to draw attention to our desire as readers to consider a translation dependable. Translations, no matter into or out of which language, are notoriously slippery eels. You can't grasp a translation and say this is exactly as this utterance occurred, first of all, in its first language. It's just impossible. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, in my own artistic practice and literary translation, when I am translating my own poems, I tend to indulge that sense of mischief and again, the sense of flagging it to the reader or having a wink to the reader. Because with a book like Lies, more often than not, its readership is going to be people who are based in Ireland and have a certain amount of the Irish language or enough the curiosity to pick up a book like that. So I know that their eye will roam back and forth between the Irish language version and the English language version, and that it will spark questions and interests within them because they'll understand some elements of both languages and both poems. Whereas for a reader who is coming to the book lies from a country or from a background where they hadn't been exposed to the Irish language, I wanted to be able to have the same wink. I wanted to be able to wink at that reader too. And in the poem where the time is written that you referred to, it's written in digits. So the reason I did that was because I really wanted the reader to be alerted to the fact that these are not the same poems. This is a different entity. This is an attempt. Um, and a negotiation, and that there are always um, strange losses and gains that operate in that process of translating from one language to the next. It's also really important for me to say that It's an entirely different matter as far as I'm concerned when I'm translating my own poems versus when I'm translating someone else's poem. For example, when I was translating Eileen Dove's poem, Queen Arthur Lyra, at the end of, the, of A Ghost in the Throat, I attempted to be as loyal as possible to her original poem. And that was my main urge, and that was a sense of fidelity. But let me, let me ask you about what that means though, to be loyal to it. And because we should mention that we get the entire poem at the end and your translation of the poem at the end of A Ghost in the Throat. But you're, but unlike your self-translation, you say it's a very different process because of this um, responsibility uh, to, to carry it across languages in a way that attends to the original intent in some fashion. But you're also confronted with that this poem has had many translations also. And I'm curious, two things. I'm curious if that was paralyzing, that there are already, I'm guessing, some bad translations, but certainly there must be some 
good or good enough translations um, and maybe some very good translations. And did you go towards ones you like as guideposts or did you willfully decide to ignore the previous translations? And then was there anything in, in specific that you learned by attending to about Eileen Dove from attending to the to her poem in such a granular way, word by word by word by word, and bringing it into English. Mm. So the process for me, first of all, of coming to Queen Arthelira was that sense of returning to the poem and and seeing something of my own existence within it, of recognizing someone else who was raising small children. Um, and that sense of, I suppose, empathy with the person who had composed this poem so many years before. And in attending to the poem, one of the things I was first drawn to do was seeking out all the other translations that had been made of the poem over the years. Looking back now, I'm not really sure what was um, compelling me to do that because I had several copies of the Queen itself um, in the Irish language, but I was compelled to attend to all the English language translations that have been made. As you say, there are many, many poets have attempted this. Um, and as with any cover version of a song, there are certain translations that really appeal to me as a reader and certain translations that I, I think fall flat, um, to put it politely. And, um, and so there was an education in that, in very closely developing an ear for the ways in which people had tried to bend the English language to make it sound like her voice. It's a fool's errand, really, but... Um, when I decided to attempt to do the same thing myself, I did feel um, ill-equipped for the task in some ways because many of the people who had attempted translations and published translations before would have been very well thought of, would have, you know, be um, hold certain positions in universities and in the academy and would be very much... Um, that their translations are part of the literary canon. Um, and who was I to attempt something like that? And the only answer I could come up with was that I cared about her and that this was some way that I could see of making a gesture towards her, a gesture that I didn't fully understand myself at that point. Um, and what surprised me in that process was the sense of in attending to her poem so closely and so carefully and for so long that what I became most enamored of within her poem were the gaps and the silences between the verses, the places where there was a full stop, where there was a natural break in the speech, where you're aware in, in a poem of over 30 verses that these are the places where she paused to draw breath 
And these are the places where we as readers reading it aloud also pause to draw breath. And the fact that this is an orchestration of the body in some way. And I suppose as I'm saying that, another thing that's important to say is that so often I was compelled to read this poem aloud, whether whispering it to myself or speaking it at an ordinary volume, and that every time I did so, I felt that sense of her voice coming through my body. Mm. And that was what part, part of what drew me to attempting the translation, which, as I say, you know, I don't rate my translation too highly. I really learned so much from the process and it was what led me towards trying to find out more of her life. So I feel like it was of value to me in that sense. Um, but I don't think that anyone can fully translate a poem like Queen Lyra and retain the particular timbre of her voice in English. I'm not sure that it's possible. I'm not sure that it's possible. And yet we keep trying. I'm far from the first person who's translated Queen Artillery and mark my words, I will not be the last. <laughs> it will continue and continue over generations of poets and writers to come because for some reason, there's something about this poem that draws us in towards it. Well, and you're greatly to thank for the way it's going to echo forward now, I think as well. I, I was going to suggest that you read the seventh and eighth stanza in Irish and English, but I didn't know if that would be strange to l leap into the middle and just read two little pieces in the middle. I think that would be lovely. Let me take a look there now. I'm going to read verses seven and eight of Queen Arthur Lyra. I'll read them in the Irish language first of all, and then I'll follow it with the English language translations. And you'll maybe notice a little of what I mean that the music of Eileen Dove's voice is so distinct in the Irish language version. Mohara hu gudangan is near credits reeve dod varov gorhone kum da chapel se shreen tale gotalov is fwil da chreer alakin sheer gotilit ranta marmihoid he is it hyasov Hogis lame, go tarshig, and dara lame, go gata, and triu lame, er the chapel. Oh, my steady companion, never could I have believed you deceased until she came to me, your steed, with her reins trailing the cobbles, and your heart's blood smeared from cheek to saddle, where you'd sit. And even stand, my dear devil. Three leaps I took. The first to the threshold. The second to the gate. The third to your mare. The vuil is galuam of vasa. Is the vuinis asna rahiv. Ho mahas avise agam. Gavuris roam to marav. Koshtorin ishal atin. Gan papa. Gan aspog. Gan clearach. Gan sagart. The lehach art on talim. Ach shenavan shriena chacha. The lahart bean da fallen. The chut fullalat. Nishrahiv. Is near Anas Lahiglana, 
achi ol suas lembasa. Fast I clapped my hands, and fast, fast I galloped, fast as ever I could have, until I found you before me, murdered by a hunched little furs, with no pope, no bishop, no clergy, no holy man to read your death psalms, only a crumpled old hag who'd raped you in her shawl rag. Love, your blood was spilling in cascades, and I couldn't wipe it away, couldn't clean it up. No, no. My palms turned cups, and oh, I gulped. Been listening to Darren Negrifa read from Eileen Dove Nahanel's Quina from A Ghost in the Throat. I want to talk about a another question of erasure, which I don't think is central to your book, but I feel like haunts your book, and that's the erasure of land in relationship to colonization and indigeneity. Because beyond the absence of Eileen Dove's grave and beyond the absence of Eileen Dove's house, which has been demolished, you also mention, usually in passing, other things. Uh, The ancient alluvial forest that has been flooded by a hydroelectric dam built in the 50s. The remnants of the ring forts and stone circles and other circular prehistoric dwellings that you encounter as you're going to different towns to find information about Eileen Dove's life. And I also think of, or this prompts me to think of Seamus Heaney's bog poems and the way it feels like both the dream life of Ireland seems to be contained in them and the literal history of Ireland preserved in the bogs. Or at least, like, that was, I, I had a very brief, super short visit to Ireland for the Hugo Awards for the book that I did with Ursula Le Guin. And the most memorable part of that trip was actually going to the exhibit of the bog bodies in the National Museum of Ireland's basement and learning that the bogs were places where people would hide bodies that had been murdered or hide treasure or store food, but that the bog preserved these people in the most incredible ways where they looked like they were forged in bronze, but with the tiniest details preserved and even hair still sprouting from their toes and the evidence of how they were killed preserved. But the bogs themselves too are, are largely disappearing in Ireland or have large, uh, over half of the bogs have disappeared due to fuel extraction. And I, I know this isn't the focus of the book, but I wondered if you could speak to geography or geology or prehistory or topography or resource extraction in relationship to to a ghost in the throat in Ireland? The place where I grew up is very close to me in terms of not physically. The place where I live now is quite distant from where I grew up, but it feels like it's etched so deeply into my identity that I carry it with me, that sense of place. It's called Kilnamona, which will be translated as Church of the Bog. So always as I was growing up, 
I had a, such a deep, certain sense of identity of this is where I'm from. I'm from the bog. Mm. Um, very poor lands from which it's very difficult and challenging to eke a living from such lands. Um, and the sense of place is very close, I feel, to Irish identity, to the ways in which we construct identity to each other and of ourselves and the ways in which we echo that sense of identity back and forth is very much rooted in the land and in landscape and the sense of place. And I feel like there, as a result, that comes across very strongly through our literature, whether in poetry or in prose. Um, the land is us and we're the land and the wounds of the land and colonization are still carried deeply within us in our bodies and in our sense of identity. Um, I feel like those wounds run very deep. Um, and yes, there's a strong, there's a strong sense of complication to those feelings for me because there's a sense in which Irish people suffered and, and were wounded and died in great numbers as a result of colonization. Lost our language, so much of it, although it's still, I feel alive, lost so much of our culture and so many of our people. And yet when Irish people went to make lives in other lands, they would often assume that role of power and inflict similar wounds on other people and that's something that I feel like for me personally is a source of great shame um so we have a complicated but very deep sense of relationship I think with the land and quite an, a natural way of kinship and understanding with other peoples who feel that strong sense of dispossession that strong sense of loss, ancestral loss, loss of language and pain and, and other peoples who carry those wounds with them as well. And yet it is complicated, like so much is complicated, you know, and so much of that sense of identity is complicated by whiteness, I think, you know. Yes. And uh, that's something that I'm still puzzling my way through and something I'm still learning about. Um, but certainly, land is extremely important to Irish identity and to my own identity. Your talk about your connection to land and this echoing back and forth around a collective sense of dispossession around land, but then also you your your impulse to um, complicate that narrative by looking at the Irish diaspora and looking at the ways in which Irish people abroad have, including Art O'Leary, for instance, fought in empires um, as career soldiers or had slaves or, um, or various other reasons, informed your, your collaboration with Lian Hao, the, the Choctaw poet who you did a call and response with. 
because her people, remarkably just 16 years after being forcibly removed from their lands and marched on the Trail of Tears, raised money for the Irish famine. And I should note also that more recently, Irish citizens have raised more than a million dollars to send to the Hopi and Navajo nations for COVID relief uh, under the same spirit of exchange, of an, of an indigenous exchange. But you could have very easily made this an exchange simply that way, but you complicated that exchange yourself or felt compelled to complicate it, specifically around Andrew Jackson coming from Irish descent, among others who were involved in Native American dispossession. Talk to us a little more about that impulse to to do that. Yeah, among others, I feel is key. You know, um, there's a great sense of, of kinship and and um, mutual compassion between the Irish people and the Choctaw people that is very much rooted in that act of extraordinary generosity where despite the terrible trauma that they were living through at that time, that when they were told of the famine that was occurring in Ireland and the mass death that was happening there, that they gathered money and sent it across the ocean. It is just awe-inspiring, that act of generosity. Um, and so in in modern times, as as that history has um, been spoken more of, I suppose, within both cultures, and there have been different cultural um, bonds that have been forged um, in terms of um, cultural um, exchange, I suppose, with between the communities and and visits between the communities back and forth across the Atlantic, it's become a very fruitful exchange. And, and for me, I'm a writer who's so um, interested in history and the nuance and complication and the inevitable shadows of history and of attending to history. Nothing is ever clear, you know, it's never, it's never a clear story that there was this extraordinary act of generosity towards the Irish people and that it's just as pure as that, the end. It is complicated by the fact that people who were driven from Ireland because of hunger, who survived the journey across the Atlantic, then trying to establish themselves within the structures of power in another culture and were complicit and active in acts of dispossession against various native peoples, including the Choctaw people. You know, it's, 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 history is always so complex and there's always so many layers of narrative and of tellings and of individual experiences and of different lenses to which to view the histories yeah. that we read of. Um, and as I say, that's it's something that I'm really still learning about. Um, and I'm very interested in the ways in which colonialism tricks the colonized 
into performing on its behalf, you know, into into complicity and yeah. I mean, it's so complex, and I I, I I'm very attracted to the impulse that you have, and as I get older. I feel like I'm more drawn to these complicated stories. I mean, mm-hmm. and I mean, you could just the difference between telling the trail of tears while acknowledging that you're being removed and walking alongside thousands of slaves that a lot of these tribes had. Um, what's the difference between telling that story while acknowledging the black slaves that are walking with you? and telling the story without acknowledging it. But I'm not even thinking of that, which just complicates it. You know, another level of complication, like I think of um, thinking mostly this week as a Jewish person and of the Jewish community in relationship to Palestine. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't want to dwell on, on all of these big issues other than one of the things that's great about A Ghost in the Throat is your willingness or your, your impulse to complicate narratives. And I kind of want to bring it back to the question from the very beginning around erasure and, and self-erasure as a woman, um, which you complicate in a really interesting way. Because as, as you've talked about already, you portray the joy of erasing things from your list of chores, the joy in disappearing into the story of another poet and mother, and the joy of disappearing into motherhood. You say, quote, there's a peculiar contentment to being found in absenting oneself like this, subsumed in the needs of others. And sometimes a female body serves another by effecting a theft upon itself. It was interesting, again, in your Jaipur Festival conversation, where Jayanti, your Indian interviewer, she loved your portrayal of motherhood, that it wasn't drowning in what she called a shit and string beans narrative, a phrase that she borrows from Marilyn French, that your portrayal of motherhood wasn't one of drudgery and despair. And it's true that I think in most cases, the sheer number of things that you are called to do for others with your four children and your husband would be more commonly portrayed as oppressive and constraining. But in A Ghost in the Throat, it's you who wants more children and you who grieves when your husband says no more after four. And that, like Jayanti from Jaipur suggested, your book both combats the erasure of women's work and celebrates it. But you do also confront the shadow side of this, the sort of reflexive self-sacrifice of women. You, you watch your daughter playing with a ball that she immediately gives up to a crying boy, even though the ball is the source of her joy. But also, with regards to breastfeeding, you say in the book, my weeks are decanted between the twin forces of milk and text. And you you definitely mean this literally, not metaphorically. You look forward to breast pumping as a time you can stop doing chores and read. But that self-time, or that quote-unquote self-time for reading, you're also breast pumping. So you're, you're, it's still an act of, of, of giving to others. You only have one cooperative breast, one breast that gives milk. And yet you are pumping milk, not only for your own kids, but for a milk bank on top of it all. So I, I was hoping maybe you could speak into these two sides of erasure 
and how they meet in the body of Darren Nagrifa? It interests me that in giving myself over to my role as a mother, I was drawn, I was drawn towards, I was drawn towards utterly subsuming myself within that role, that I almost let myself disappear in it, particularly in light actually of what we were talking about there about around complexity and around complicity, you know, like so much of this book, I was considering the ways in which women have been erased from the historical record and really raging against it in many ways and attempting to find ways in which to lure these women's histories back from the historical record. Um, and yet, simultaneously, I was very drawn to utterly subsuming myself within motherhood until I felt myself almost invisible, that there was almost that there was almost a seductive um, attraction towards self-obliteration in some way within those roles. And then in seeking the story of Eileen Dovney Connell's life, in some way, my attention was drawn to these patterns within myself, that in order to seek out her life or what remained of her life, I had to leave the patterns in which I was happily existing, completely subsumed within motherhood. I had to leave those patterns aside because there was something else that was drawing me towards it. And initially, the same patterns of behavior recurred within this new drive where it was the same thing. I found myself going from feeling utterly subsumed within motherhood and the various routines I had built around myself like walls into new routines where I was building new walls around myself, completely devoted to Eileen Dovney Connell. And yet the path of seeking out more about her led me to the realization that there was something beyond those walls. And when I set to writing this book, writing the story of what I had found and the story of what I had lived and attempted to find more of Eileen Dovney Connell, I found that I was looking beyond those walls to see what was beyond them. And so I feel like attempting to come to know Eileen Dovney Connell led me to a deeper understanding of of myself and and that she lured me away from that pattern of of letting myself become utterly consumed in in strange little routines and rituals now i do still keep my to-do list <laughs> and i do still take great satisfaction from scribbling through each task on it and every time i do so it's a good reminder of the fact that i'm constantly erasing myself in some way from my days as well as writing myself into them. Well, as we come into our remaining time together, I do want to return to the body and to the body as female text and the ways you portray the body and your particular interest in the body and where it comes from. But before we do, I was, I wanted, I was hoping you'd read another short section from A Ghost in the Throat. For two and a half years, the days and nights I have shared with my daughter all brim with milk. I have held her to my breast in airports and supermarkets, on beaches and buses, on footpaths and benches, 
I have fed her through waking and sleeping, through her fevers, teething and tummy bugs, and through my own exhaustion, breast infections, mastitis fevers and jammed ducts. She feeds. I feed. She sleeps. I ache. Even in my weariest moments, though, there remains a sort of merriness in feeling so useful. My right breast knows her needs intimately and fills them immediately. My left breast, however, still won't work, lazy, brazen lump. From the moment that the skin of my girl chest began to rise, the left nipple was inverted. Sullen, it never sang to a lover's touch. Whereas my right breast is plump and industrious, the left dozes limply. Milk has made of me a lopsided factory. In the bra fitting rooms, a stranger shucks her tongue at my body. My right breast requires the substantial architecture of an e-cup, the left a small b, a conundrum that represents an impossible arithmetic for any engineer of lingerie. I end up in what a younger version of myself might have mocked as a granny bra, unembellished white fabric stitched to tough, sturdy straps, adjusted until one breast is hoisted high while the other lolls in its voluminous cotton pocket. I take to wearing cardigans. For years my sleep is broken by milk. Occasionally, as I'm tugged awake, I take comfort in imagining how often this precise moment has been enacted not only by my own body, but by other mothers, again and again and again, each a mirroring of the same elements, the milk, the mother, the baby, the dark, the milk, the mother, the baby, the dark, the milk, the milk, the milk. And in such moments I am excruciatingly tired, yes. And yet contentment hovers here too, shivering in the peripheries, regardless of how tired I am. I am excruciatingly tired, yes. So tired that I frequently repeat myself, so very, very tired. And yet I still procrastinate over whether to wean. To lure this child away from my body and train her hungers elsewhere would be to pull myself from my comfortable burrow of service. I can't do it. The ritual of giving of myself to another is so exquisite. I have made an invisibility of myself, neatly concealed in rooms made by female labour and repetition and milk. I kind of want to invite our animals into this conversation because people don't, people aren't going to probably notice. Maybe they'll notice a little bit, but Mossy, your dog, and Ewok, my cat, have been a, a large part of our talking today. And uh, Mossy has licked the microphone at one point, leapt over behind you in the chair. Ewok has yelled at me multiple times. And, um, We've changed rooms, changed microphones, um, opened and closed doors. But I, 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 the reason I'm going to bring this up for, I'm going to try to segue this, um, 
this bringing in of the animals into a question because what you just read is just one of many, many ways you attend to the body in the book. Um, but before we talk about that, I want to end with us talking about your interest in the body in general. But before the, we get to that last final section of us talking, if you could talk more specifically about the importance of this being a woman's body, insofar as you even um, make sure we know that Art O'Leary's horse is a female horse, speaking of animals. And then there's this amazing moment when you fall asleep and another mother awakens, a mother bat, where you say, and this is, I think, where we can really, among many places, sense that this is a poet writing a, a prose work. Sensing a mouth gripped to her milk, she lifted herself by claw and by clench, stretched and then opened her wings, sleek as an opera cloak. An infant clung to her fur as she twitched, readying herself in flight from arrangements of stone which were dreamt, drawn, and built by human hands long before. Soon she was in motion, plunging and soaring, swooping and falling, devouring every aquatic midge she found over the loch, while her infant gripped tight, still and suckling, eyes closed to her mother's momentum. To glimpse a bat in flight is to sense a flicker at the periphery of one's vision, phantom inverted commas tilting through the dark. A complex system of echolocation allows her to navigate the night, guided by the echoes that answer her voice. That's that's just so amazing. And I I um but I'm I'm curious about these other creatures being mothers. Not Mossy, not your dog, but uh, <laughs> at least I don't think Mossy's a mother. No. Mossy's a boy. Um I'm fascinated by female lives um throughout history and in our current moment within the culture in which I find myself and in other cultures as well. And I'm very interested in the commonalities within those existence and in the ways in which those lives veer away from each other. So within this book, um, I suppose I wanted to attempt to articulate something of what it has felt for me to inhabit a female body in my life and the sense that I have of my life as being like a female text, just one female text, very different from so many other people's lives. Um, I suppose I felt compelled to explore what that sense of a female life might look like in terms of female animals' bodies as well. And yet I felt a really strong sense of boundary around exploring what it was to inhabit a female body for people whose experiences might be very different from mine. I'm really drawn towards reading a lot about other people's experiences of female lives across a whole spectrum of experiences. Um, but within this book, I wanted to confine myself to what I know best in terms of what I have lived and what I imagine Eileen Dove has lived. But it was very revealing to me to consider 
how an examined female life might appear when one looks towards the animal kingdom. So, for example, one of the most revealing moments for me in writing the book was looking towards Arthur Leary's horse, the horse over which he was murdered. Um, and the, his murder over that horse was what compelled Eileen Duff to compose and to speak the Queen over his body. So without that horse, this poem would never have been composed. Mm. So the horse felt like a, a really key character to me. And the horse really surprised me because when I began to set to imagining what her female life might have been like, in fact, it revealed much more to me about my life and about Eileen Dove's life and about what I wanted to communicate to the reader through A Ghost in the Throat. It revealed so much more of that to me than I could ever have imagined. And sometimes I think our books can take us by surprise, that in taking a moment to imagine I wonder, I wonder what the horse's female life might have been like. And in what ways can that become revealing towards other female characters within the book? Yeah. Um, that really, really surprised me. In fact, it astonished me, that element of writing about that female horse. Well, if we were to step back from examining the female body to examining the body and look at your origin story around your interest in bodies. Because you're, I, I suspect, the only person who has rebelled against her family by wanting to become a dentist. And in your brief sojourn towards becoming a dentist, um, in that brief time, you had an encounter of or the opportunity to uh, dissect a cadaver. And you've described mm -hmm. in your essay, it's something you touch on in Augustine, the, Ghost in the Throat and talk more fully in your essay in the Dublin Review. And you describe it there as one of the most important events, events of your life, is this encounter and, and engagement with a body. C can, you, can you step back from the book we have here and back to that moment for us and how that moment echoes forward to a ghost in the throat? I was very young when I went to college. And as you say, that was so much the source of my attempt at teenage rebellion to um, confound and irritate my parents by insisting on a profession uh, like dentistry, which they knew I wasn't cut out for and they really tried to communicate that to me you know like they understood me and I refused that and I worked really hard and managed to get a place on a course to become a dentist and and part of that first year in dentistry was pre-med so we in small groups dissected human bodies um Within a year, I had understood that life as a dentist wasn't for me and had changed course. Um, but that experience of dissecting a human body was profoundly, profoundly instructive and, and really changed 
the person I was becoming in such an important way. Um, and when I step back from it now and I can see it from my perspective at the moment, I mean, what you're looking at is an, an encounter with the dead. It's a return and a looking closely at and an examination of the dead, of a dead body, of a woman's body. And so much of a ghost in the throat and of my attempts to come to know Eileen Dovni Connell is a repetition or an echo of that, the standing over a woman's body and slowly dissecting through those layers in an effort to understand something, in an effort to learn something, being confronted with the past and making your way through it and attempting to make and, and, and attempting to draw some sort of meaning or learning from that experience. Um, and it was such an important part of my life at that age that, it, it, that I have donated my own body to medical science in the same university. Um, I think in an effort in some ways to, to make that gesture towards the generation that towards the generations that are yet to come. No, that's wrong. In an effort, because not generations, like I'm not going to be there for, <laughs> for centuries. I think in an effort to make a gesture towards people in a similar situation, maybe to what I was in. And I've totally made my peace with the fact that, you know, there'll probably be a lot of joking as there often is with teenage medical students in that kind of a moment. And I'm so, um, I'm so pleased to be able to give myself over to that process in the hopes that someone will draw as much from that interaction as I drew from the same interaction. And I do feel it was an interaction. The woman who had donated her body to that experience, I felt like in some way, was active within that role like there was an active sense of instruction that I felt and a sense of presence really in a lot of ways um, and it was such a valuable experience David I recommend it to everybody <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> you you've described donating your body to science as more for poetic than altruistic reasons and I think the thing that most proves that this is true is that you've tattooed messages in white ink on your skin messages to the future people who will dissect you and this feels like this amazing way of you're you're literally bringing text into the body in the way mm -hmm. that you're insisting the keen into the text of a ghost in the throat um mm -hmm. and it, it extends this idea of haunting across time again not just that you're offering your body but there's this song in your body written in your body now i want to hear about that if you're willing to share and i don't know if you're willing to share what you've chosen or whether that's too private but i would love to hear if you're if that isn't something that that is too private to share with us i feel like there are so many ways in which the work of art and literature that we attend to become inscribed within us at a very deep level, almost in this sense of 
being inscribed on us and in us as invisible ink. That the elements of literature and art that we attend to and that make a profound, um, or that generate a profound echo within us of meaning, stay with us in this deep way. And so it felt really important to honor Queen Arti Lira in that way, that it would be represented not just at a metaphorical level within this character, within the sense of myself that appears in the book, but that it will be literally etched within her skin, especially because of white ink and the, the relevances that that has with Suzu's writing, you know, and the sense of resonances with milk as well. And the fact, the choice of the part of Queen Artilera that she chooses is Ashling Tree Nailov. For me to choose something like that from Queen Artilera, which I suppose you would translate as is Ashling Tree Nailov. Ashling is important because not only would it be literally translated as dream, but it speaks to a genre within our literature, which you actually quoted at the very beginning of our conversation, the Ashling, which is an element or a kind of poem where a poet has a reverie in which a, a woman, a beautiful woman comes to him that represents Ireland and communicates something to him. Invariably, you know, these are the gender roles that are in it. It's Ashling Tree Nailov. It's Ashling Tree Nailov and Tree Nailov means like through clouds, through clouds of slumber. So it can be a dream coming in and the dreaming element of this book was so important to um, the sense of our times that within it, that there's a sense of dreaming yourself into the past. So to have this, is Ashling Tree Nailov etched in one's skin just seemed so luminous and so important. And the fact of having a body that's donated to medical science and having teenage medical students interacting with it and finding this invisible text or perhaps not finding it because the thing with white ink is that it fades like a scar you'd have to be really attending to it to see it there you know depending on the embalming process I guess um but the sense of reading a woman's body like a text there's a magic in that there's such a magic in that and it's a gift you know and I I feel like it really acknowledges the ways that we're affected at a bone level by the art and literature that we encounter. Well, there's this poem in To Star the Dark I was hoping we could end with, a letter to a stranger who will dissect my brain. This poem has an Irish language word embedded within it, um, a word that may be new to you, um, and the word is fuskla. Um, it has a double meaning within Irish. It can mean both in terms of a verb, the act of opening, but it also means the occurrence of sheet lightning. A letter to the stranger who will dissect my brain. For months, you worked scissors and scalpel through elbow and knuckle, 
ligament and lung. I felt you gasp the morning you folded my face back like a mask. For you, my head was unsealed by chisel and skull key, so that today you may raise the calvarium and see my brain there, cold and grey, under Dora Mater and spiderweb membrane. For this moment, dear stranger, I leave you a gift, a double word, Fuskla, which can both open and throw sheet lightning. Know that when you unlock my brain with your blade, synaptic flashes will flare over your own grey landscape. Your brain will blaze bright, alive and wild. And I, I will be the light. Darren, it was so wonderful to spend all this time with you today. I had, it, I've been anticipating this for so many months now, and it exceeded all of my expectations. Oh, thank you so much, David. I absolutely love listening to you all the time. So it's been a treat for me as well. Thank you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. We're talking today to Darren Negrifa, the author of A Ghost in the Throat, out from Biblioasis, and To Star the Dark, out from Daedalus Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Darren Negrifa's work, not only written work, but audio and video as well, at our website, darrennegrifa.com. Darren adds two readings to the bonus audio archive, a reading of a poem by Irish poet Colette Bryce and another by the American poet Deborah Dix. This joins bonus material from Jory Graham, Natalie Diaz, Ross Gay, Forrest Gander, Viet Tan Nguyen, Carmen Maria Machado, Richard Powers, Jenny Ophel, Nikki Finney, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make this show run. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>